Becoming a Rolex authorized dealer is like owning really good land, but in a place where you can't really develop it. There's a lot of ordinances. Everything is highly restrictive. It's like you have something valuable, but you can't really make too much of it. And there's a, there's a huge amount of maintenance all the time. It's, it's a very specific type of franchise. You're part of the Rolex machinery. I don't think people can see it anymore as being uh, an independent entrepreneurial retailer that just also happens to sell Rolex. I don't think that those things happen anymore. This week on A Blog to Watch Weekly with Rick and Ariel, we seize the day with a Louis Vuitton Tambour Carpe Diem Automaton watch. We seize the deal with the Tissot PRX chronograph, and we seize the world with the Yes Watch version 7. Finally, we ask just what is a bricks and mortar retailer to do when it comes to high demand, low stock, and competition from online media turned retailer. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to a blog to watch weekly. How are you this week, Ariel? I'm doing very well. I have returned recently from Switzerland, only to prepare to depart again <laughs> recently for Switzerland. Hey, and how how were the Swiss? Were the Swiss on fine form? Yes, it was actually quite nice to be in Switzerland. I don't know exactly when it was, but pandemic-related restrictions such as masks and testing and things like that were more or less dropped. It was very much a sense of business as usual in Geneva. Obviously not the same cast of characters walking around town, but I was on the famed Rue de Rhone where most of the high-end watch stores are and there seemed to be some activity. Still, of course, waiting for some of the money to come back, but it will be interesting to see over the next couple of months and into the year who will be coming to Switzerland specifically to purchase watches. Lots of uncertainty drifting into the market because of events in uh, the east side of Europe and uh, possibly whatever China are thinking of doing about it may have an impact as well. What has been the highlight of the week for you other than uh, presumably the first class lounge at American Airlines? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, there was an opportunity to view uh, the La Fabrique du Temps uh, watch manufacturer facility in Geneva that is owned by uh, Louis Vuitton, and it is where all of their watches are made. And um, I had heard about the facility, and I'd known a lot of the people that founded it. Uh, they purchased it a, a little bit over 10 years ago. I think in about 2011 or so, they um, fully acquired it and absorbed it. Prior to that, it was an independent facility being a supplier doing pretty wild, ridiculous high-end watches, great provenance coming from some places such as, you know, Gerald Genta, crazy, you know, minute repeaters, sonneries and things like that. Also, a lot of other brands, Frank Muller's crazy stuff. So these people that were creating some of the more exotic watches in the last 20, 25 years now are basically solely working for Louis Vuitton and they have this very special high-end division. I mean, they have what they would call entry-level luxury watches, you know, under $10,000. And then there's this whole very, very remarkable area, over $50,000. And one of the watches I think we're going to talk about today is their Carpe Diem. So until now, mostly discreet, really not talking a lot about what they do, but it was a, a really fantastic opportunity to go in there and not necessarily necessarily something that you would associate with a big fashion house so I had a really good time there and that was exciting to see good good and uh, what film did you watch on the plane on the way home are you one of these people that watches films on oh airplanes? yeah oh yeah it's one of the only times I have a chance to watch films yeah yeah so what'd you watch what'd you I saw a lot with? of classics the first movie I watched was Dr. Strangelove again I was happy right, okay. that and, and it felt <laughs> That's very to- appropriate. topical very topical, topical yes. holds up topical. very well Stanley Kubrick <laughs> 1964 I recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. If you haven't seen it in a while, 
see it again it holds up remarkably well is there any watch content in dr strangelove i can't remember in dr strangelove is there watch content you you know what movie i saw that had watch content actually i had seen this watch in the 90s and really enjoyed it had seen it again it was movie called strange days it's actually like what i call the secret james cameron film i think it was actually directed by his his ex-wife or i don't think they're still married anymore amazing movie but in there ralph fines he he routinely goes around trying to give people his fake rolex as a payment for something and then if someone is stupid enough to take it he takes another fake rolex out of his suitcase and just puts it right on his wrist so i thought that was kind of amusing so you're telling me you watched dr strange love strange ways so does that mean you watch Doctor Strange as well. No, I didn't see any of the Marvel things. You're right. That would have really completed the, the Trinity. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Good stuff. Great. Well, let's uh, crack on and let's actually do as you suggest. Let's uh, seize the day and talk about the Louis Vuitton Tambor Carpe Diem. I believe, and I'm happy to be shouted down and proved wrong, that this won a prize at GPHG, and I know what a big fan of GPHG you are, and so you'll obviously have paid extreme close attention to the prize worthiness of this watch. I think it won the Innovation Prize, or the Audacity Prize, or... I, you know, some, pri- I, some prize you give to watches because wait a minute, we haven't given enough prizes to Louis Vuitton. Let's <laughs> let's give let's give them this one. My feelings on the GPHG is that it's an it's an industry award. It's sort of the industry awarding itself, patting itself on the back. Doesn't have a whole lot of value to consumers, in my opinion. But that is a different conversation. When I do remember that their third generation uh, dive watch, the Tambor uh, Street Diver, got some type of award yep. there. I don't know. What what it was for. This watch is the Louis Vuitton rendition of a Memento Mori item. And Memento Mori is essentially a an item that you wear that's supposed to motivate you by telling you that you're going to die. So it's like, hey, remember, you're <laughs> going to die someday. So better make the best of today. And there's been this whole culture of Memento Mori style jewelry sort of falling into the world of watches. And basically the genesis of all skull watches of any kind is as a Memento Mori type of item. So, you know, if you're wor- curious, why are there so many skull watches? And so, of course, Louis Vuitton has to do their skull watch. It is not just a skull watch. It has a skull watch grave skull on the on the front of the watch it has a snake crawling through one of the eyes and then apparently through what appears to be a hole in the head and the snake is sort of woven through the architecture of the case in fact the pusher which activates it because it doesn't do anything until you activate it looks like the head of a snake it's it's it, it, it's pretty incredible stuff. The movement, when you turn the watch around, there's a bridge that also looks like a skull. And it's one of the most intelligent blends of this is a watch movement bridge and a skull motif I've ever seen where the rubies are made to look like eyes. I mean, the amount of effort that went into this is unquestionable. The taste is not for everyone. It's one of those polarizing things like, do you like Halloween stuff? You're going to love this thing. Does wearing scary things that are meant to shock and awe repel you when it comes to luxury and you prefer soft, child-friendly things, this is not the watch for you. Louis Vuitton with La Fabrique du Temps has the ability to create musical watches, the ones with automaton. And so this one's on a musical watch, but what it does is it displays an animation while at the same time displaying the time in a poetic way. And so when you just look at this watch, the only indicator you see is an hourglass 
which is actually the power reserve indicator. So the first sort of bit of yeah. engineering they needed to do was make an hourglass that actually showed you how much power reserve was left in the movement. And this was a challenge and it goes back to this core theme, or as you know, in certain cultures, an hourglass is also an allegory for how much time you have left in your life. And you have a lot of sand left or a little bit of sand. So that goes in sort of the messaging and memento mori. And when you push this large snake style pusher, it's a very satisfying action. This animation ensues and we have a little bit of a little video on the article. This snake, which is beautifully hand painted and engraved and it's painted by Anita Porchette, who is this very famed, you know, Swiss miniature painter and, and who, you know, does each of these one by one. Uh, the, the head of the snake kind of sways and the tail moves and the, the mouth of the skull opens and closes and the tail of the snake also doubles as a retrograde minute indicator. So there's a small scale printed on the dial of, you know, one to 60. The head of the snake moves aside and then the forehead, like the third eye is a jumping hour indicator window. And that's how you read the time. First, you look at the, the number in the forehead of the skull, and then you see where the tail uh, is positioned and the mouth underneath it, when it when it's opened, it, it just says carpe diem, you know, which is seize the day, which doesn't always traditionally relate to memento mori, but essentially is the more uplifting version of it. Like seize the day because you don't have necessarily all that many days left. I think they did a good job of incorporating a lot of the messaging around this for that audience. They'll, they're going to make like less than 30 of these ever. The price is $440,000. It's a, it's a big hefty gold watch in the tambour case. What I like about it is that weird stuff like this isn't necessarily what you would think of from a major luxury fashion house, especially a French one that tends to play it a little bit more simply. You'd think of this as something that came from a much more niche brand. There's just so much going on here and so much effort. And it's so kind of weird that it's actually kind of nice to see a brand like Louis Vuitton doing something so patently avant-garde. That, that's why I like it, because in a sense, it's, it's almost out of character. Does this watch permanently tell the time or does it only tell tell the time when you activate it and the hands move to it? That's a good question. So it, it knows the time internally, of course, if you, you know, there's actually kind of yeah. a weird way that you have to set it, but unless you activate it, you don't know what time it is because right, the, okay. the snake's head blocks the hour window and the tail it just sort of rests to the side and doesn't indicate anything. So I don't actually know if there's a name for that. It used to be called a secret dial where you'd have to open or close something. Women would have these watches. They would be called secret dial watches and they just look like a bracelet. It was like to hide the fact that you have a watch. This obviously is a watch, even though you can't tell the time. I don't know if we have a name for this. I don't even want to call it a complication, this feature, but you could sort of call it a quasi secret dial. Well, if you've got a suggestion, dear listener, as to what this is, called or you know what it's called then then messages let us know I, I look at this and all i can think of is james bond live and let die which frankly is a terrible movie but it's got a great soundtrack is this watch cool yes is it four hundred thousand dollars cool it probably is actually in the grand scheme of things i mean look there's at the diamonds, detail there's gold, there's look, look at the there's, pictures uh, power reserve is that like gold it looks like it's gold flakes or something yeah, it's it's there's a slight bit of magnification there. I mean, look, I mean, look at the detailing on the snake itself. 
Look at, yeah, look, I mean, look cool. at that. It's, it's, it's an incredible level of effort. Hundreds, if not thousands of hours. And that's why these things cost what they do. Again, it's, it's hard not to be romanced. But is it, is it where I would personally put $440,000 in a wristwatch? I'm not, I'm not like a skull watch guy. And I'm personally kind of weirded out by the memento mori thing. Like, I'm not that comfortable with my mortality to keep thinking about the time. But again, it's for a niche audience. And the skull watch buyer certainly knows who they are. So if you want to spend £400,000 to remind yourself every time you want to tell the time that you're about to die or soon will or something could happen bad, then uh, Louis Vuitton is where you want to be visiting. Let's talk about the Tissot PRX. We debuted the new PRX chronograph watch um, over on March 15th. Now, let's put some context. I guess it was last year. Yeah, it wasn't even that long ago, or maybe the year before that, the Tissot came out with the PRX, which was an update on a series of models that it had uh, quite a while ago, some quartz watches. And the first PRX was a quartz watch, and it was under $400, and we really liked it because of the finishing and the style for the price point was excellent. It was a nice thin case. The original was quartz, and so it was a sort of a, a, a throwback to that. Then Tissot did something very interesting. They introduced the PRX Automatic, which was the same cool case with the integrated steel bracelet, you know, some nice colorful dials, but with an uh, automatic movement that was a little bit more fitting to the enthusiast that just tends to like mechanical watches more than quartz a lot of the time. Now they've come out with a chronograph version. It's not quartz. It is mechanical. It's 40 millimeter wide and it has, you know, one of these wonderful, you know, in-group swatch group movements that is, it's not the 7750. It's related to, it's called the a 5 H31. You can read the article to learn a little bit more about this movement, but suffice it to say, you have a very sort of hip, retro looking, somewhere between sporty and dressy chronograph that is now $1,750. So several times the price of the original PRX, which I think was about $375, but of course a very different type of product here. I am not necessarily sure what Tissot's continued plans are for the PRX, you know, they they just as easily could have had a quartz chronograph version. They didn't here. Maybe they will. What what do you think, Richard? What is the appeal for a lot of people of the Tissot PRX? Because it has been very popular for them. Yeah, I mean, it's a Swiss brand. It's a well-known brand. They're probably the biggest seller. I seem to recall there was a, the recent report will be out as to the volume sales and Tissot is a huge manufacturer. Like the, the amount of product they make is massive. In compare, I want to say they make over a million watches a year. Probably, probably. Let, let me correct myself. It's 42 millimeters wide. The, 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 the original PRX that came out the other year, well, the original revised one from last year is 40. Chronograph is 42 millimeters wide. Please continue. Sorry. It is. They are a massive producer. And actually touching on, and if, if you're listening to this and you've not listened to this week's superlative podcast with, uh, you need to pronounce his name from Salita, then you should, because he touches a bit on this and, you know, the kind of Swiss made factor and the volume factor. It's a great interview, actually. I really enjoyed it. With Sebastian uh, Chalmentot? Uh, yeah, that was, that was really interesting to hear directly from Salita. Yeah. Salita is essentially set up to be a supplier. And for those that don't know, just really quickly talking about it, Salida began 
by someone who was a supplier to the Swatch Group, and they started making, for lack of a better term, clones, uh, you know, legally uh, appropriate replicas, because again, patents had run out on a lot of these things. So if you could replicate the shape of the movements, then you could just, the, the architecture wasn't really protected in a lot of ways. So they started by offering uh, their version of the ETA 2824 and their version of the 7750 and things like that. And that was a very successful business model for them. And then they started to develop their own stuff. Sebastian heads the division where they create new things, new movements and stuff like that. This is not a company that most consumers know, even even most watch enthusiasts, you mentioned Solita, they might vaguely understand what it is, but they don't really understand the business model. So th thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that. That was a great episode of Superlative. But anyway, back to Tissot. I mean, this is clearly targeted at the people, the design of the integrated sports watch chronograph. There's hundreds of them out there. Nobody can get hold of all the really expensive ones. And this is plugging into the zeitgeist. And frankly, it does it incredibly successfully. And as you say, it's 42 mil. So it's actually, from my point of view, a really nice size. And you know what? It's got a display case back. That movement has actually done quite well. It's actually quite nice in the grand scheme of things. Okay, it's no Patek Philippe or Elang and Zona. But actually, for a 1,500 quid, it's a good looking watch. It's going to do a job. No one's going to give you any hassle for it. I suspect if you're walking into your watch meetup, people are going to be really interested to see this and that most of the reaction you're going to get is, that's good value for the money. That's not bad for that amount of notes. It's pretty. It's 100 metres water resistant. So you could, you could wear it. You could beat it up without being too worried that you are damaging your precious. It'll keep good time. It's a big brand. It'll be serviceable. All the rest of it. Can't see many flaws in this, other than for some people who hate date windows at 4.30. Personally, never had a problem with them. It, it's not a bad watch at all. And, you know, when the Swatch Group wants to create the best value in the marketplace, meaning the most watch for the money, they know how to do it. And you're absolutely correct that this is a stellar value because oftentimes you look at the componentry, the finishing, and you ask yourself, what would a comparable brand charge? And you can conceivably see people charge double. It's not exactly a one-to-one -one comparison, but a Balma Mossier, I don't think significantly has a better product, but is routinely priced about double this. Again, you know, Tissot always, always, along with Hamilton and Longines, all part of the Swatch Group, always can create the best uh, best in marketplace value. This is conservative, and which is, I think, works in their favor given the strategy. Over the last several years, what we've noticed is that the highest priced Tissot watches have been retro-styled chronographs, and some of them have actually cost a lot more than this. This is actually uh, a step down in price, and like you said, it's a pretty impressive movement for the money. So if you are someone that routinely spends under $2,000 or still has never spent over $2,000 and you want to get yourself into a slightly fancier product, I, I think you should take a good look at this. And again, like you, like you said, Richard, I, I look forward to putting this on, this on my wrist because I haven't done that yet. You may be listening to this show on the Spending Time channel. Uh, on your Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to it directly on a blog to watch weekly. We would encourage you to do that. And in particular, if you subscribe to it on a blog to watch weekly via Spotify, you can interact with the show. Uh, you can send us questions. You can actually send us voicemails. So if you, after you've listened to the show this week, want to suggest, I'll put a poll 
on the app as to what your watch release of the week was, you can give your answer either by clicking on the poll or actually sending us a voicemail. And if you send us a voicemail and it's a good voicemail, we might even play it at the end of the show. So do get involved with the show via Spotify. Next up is where I wanted to focus most of the show was on an article that was done earlier in the week by Scott Starr. He did an article entitled, What is a Watch Retailer to Do? It's a good article. I think you could probably have written an article 10 times the length of this and still have maintained my interest in all the angles as to just how are watch retailers to deal with the fact that people want stuff that they can't get hold of and the competition between the online guys, the competition between media companies, not us, between media companies who are becoming watch retailers. So what's your overall thoughts on what Scott had to say? And where do you see, it kind of follows on from your superlative show, where do you see watch retailers, bricks and mortar guys, having to pivot to to survive. Thank you for introducing this article. Scott is a watch enthusiast and someone who is interested in the retail side. And he and I worked together uh, quite closely in this article going through various drafts. He started this by speaking to a number of watch retailers that he sort of did business with. What he found was that they didn't really want to talk a lot. I sort of warned him that it's difficult to get information out of the retailers because he was really curious about some of their experiences. So I said, what is it that we can do to come up with a very satisfying discussion about what's going on right now? Because he and many other people are quite frustrated at what it's like to to buy um, you know, Rolexes and other things at retailers. And I think there's a natural curiosity, what's going on? Because no watch retailer truly has the desire to present a negative experience. And so I led him down the road of asking certain questions designed to say, what what is a watch re- retailer to do when, on the one hand, you have the cushy brands like Rolex that are hard to get, but once you land it, there's not really too much to do, but you're never going to grow and you're never really that happy. And then there's these independent brands that come with all this risk associated with them, can help you make money. If you do particularly well for them, they sort of you know, take take the relationship away from you and try to sell themselves. And so retailers are left in this very awkward position at times where they have to balance a lot of things and find sort of this, this uh, equilibrium, which is uh, more an art than a science. And so this discusses some of the interesting considerations that retailers, especially those independent watch retailers in America, have and, and what is going on. I wanted to ask you, because you live in a different country. Does this sound a little bit like the experiences that people have in Scotland and maybe the UK? Or does this sound like a slightly different type of experience over in America? No, it sounds very similar. Retailers over here, especially the chains, or anyone with a Rolex concession are very, very tight-lipped. And there's plenty of stories in Scotland of very famous old Rolex dealers having the concession removed and and simply then going out of business, disappearing because it was their bread and butter and they couldn't pivot towards selling stuff that actually they needed real watch knowledge in order to make the case to somebody as to why they should buy this over just queuing for a day date or a submariner or whatever it is. So I would say the experience in Scotland is very similar. 
I think Scotland and the UK splits okay. the same way that the States does. There's those consumers that know watches, know what's available, know what they want. It's a lovely business to be in because as a watch geek, I can think of nothing better than being around watches and selling them all day. But when you look into that, when you stare under the hood, when you see how the sausages are made, it does feel like a heck of a lot of hard work, a heck of a lot of bashing your head against a brick wall, trying to understand why you can't sell the stuff that you've got customers for, but you kind of get the stock of. Well, I think that, you know, the overall summation of the article is to sum up, like we're talking about, this odd conundrum that retailers can find themselves in. I, I want to partially de-vilify the institution of the watch retailer because when a watch is difficult to get and some retailers are taking advantage of that, it can make it look as though the watch retailer, you know, is the is the the problem in the chain. You know, are they artificially withholding it? But there is a there's more of a background story there about what it's like to be them, which I think is important. I have a big interest in promoting good retailers. I believe that there are companies that make watches, those are the watch brands, and there's companies that sell watches, those are the retailers, and there's companies that, that talk about watches, which is media like a blog to watch. And I, I think that at a minimum, the watch industry needs those three entities. And when they when they try to blend together, it's not always very successful. When brands try to be the retailer, that's a lot of work to do. That's an entirely different sort of company to set up. And when retailers try to be media, it just turns into a catalog. It's not really media. You have to have at minimum for you know sales and marketing, these, these three entities, the people that build, the people that sell, the people that talk about and, you know, and, and, and generate demand. And so I'm very protective of the space, but it's a weird place to be in right now. The watch industry can still do a great job of building a watch. And when they align everything straight and they work with us properly, they can do a great job of creating demand for the watch. But there's that really weird weak link right now, which is in selling the watch, which has, uh, it's just fraught with a lot of complexity and a lot of issues and things like that. So what I really liked about this article is all the people that commented. Um, there's you know a lot of comments, yeah. very rich discussion, people explaining their perspectives, feelings on different ends of the spectrum. You know, some people in there said hilarious things about you know <laughs> Rolex needs to increase their prices to stop all this, and other people are aghast at this. I want to say one more thing about this, which I think is really really important, and that relates back to Rolex because Rolex is in this very strange position where they can accurately say we did no proactive things in any way shape or form to create scarcity to create hype like we've just been doing sort of the same thing we do all the time and this situation happened around us but we're powerless to do anything about it and that's where i think some of the problem exists as you said earlier richard when rolex tells a retailer something they jump and they can take away their ability to sell watches very, very easily. Rolex retailers are essentially at the whims of Rolex. Anything Rolex tells them to do, they more or less are going to do. And at the same time, Rolex is a company that viciously protects their reputation across the board. Quality, image, intellectual property. This is a company that you know uses legal means and business means to protect their image and reputation. Yet, 
in this instance, I think we can agree something bad is happening to their reputation. When you have a bad experience trying to get that Rolex time and time again, it started out as being kind of frustrating. Now people are starting to approach it with vitriol and real anger. And my argument is that Rolex's reputation is being affected right now. This is a company that has a lot of precedence when it comes to proactively defending their reputation. So I think the question that Rolex should be asking themselves right now is, is our reputation being affected enough that we want to go and assert the very real power we have over our retailer base to do something about it? It's obviously a very complicated question, but I do think that we're edging to the point where action on behalf of Rolex is merited. Yeah, there's definitely a sequel article to this, which is what is Rolex to do? Because as you say, for whatever reason, a large percentage of the population that's interested in watches wants to look at a Rolex. Rolex advertise everywhere, so I don't know what they expect to happen. That If they advertise ubiquitously in every airport, every big sporting event virtually, you know, people are going to be interested in the brand. They're going to think of them as a brand when they decide to go watch shopping but they can't fulfill it. And is there a tipping point at which, as you suggest, Rolex start hurting themselves because everybody wants them and they can't fulfill the demand? But equally, Rolex can't suddenly go from producing, you know, eight, nine hundred thousand, a million watches a year. You know, if they produce two million watches a year, there'd still probably be a shortage. You know, the world is increasing in its middle class at an enormously vast rate, the most desirous luxury goods brands simply can't fulfil the demand and maintain any form of luxury status. So uh, it is a vicious circle for so many in this, the retailer, the brands, the media. You know, you're very proud of the fact that at a blog to watch, we're the media. We're not retailers. Let retailers be retailers. Let brands be brands and let media be media. And, you know, it might look like it works when you start mixing those things together. But long term, I think the strategy is right. They don't mix because eventually everybody figures out the figures out the Wizard of Oz like stuff that's going on in the background. So, yeah, I'd be interested in the sequel article from Scott or yourself or someone else, which is what are Rolex to do? Because I don't know. There's a problem. I don't know how they square the circle. I'm lucky to have some back-channel discussions with brands that I can't make public, that are not official statements from the brands. And and I do have a number of colleagues at, at Rolex. There's a variety of opinions there. I can just say this. This is a very active conversation happening at Rolex on a regular basis. There are differences of opinions internally. Some people who want to do nothing, some people that want to do something, and amongst the people that want to do something, there are plenty of different factions. Rolex is a Swiss company with a very, very heavy sense of a consensus culture, meaning prior to them making any move, especially a big move like this, they need to agree with one another. It is not sort of an American autocratic style company where there's someone on top and be like, I'm the boss, this is what we do, and we're all going to follow along. If you don't like it, you can get out of here. That's just not how things operate at Rolex. It's very political where you have to get, you know, for example, 30 or 40 people on board with your idea 
prior to it being enacted. So it begins with like one person having a good idea and convincing one another person and another person and another person. And all the time, the market might be damaged and there might be things going on and nothing's happening. But the slow gears of, of motion are happening at Rolex until they decide to maybe do something. I think sometimes they hope that if they waited out long enough, the problem goes away. Like, that would be the best thing ever. Like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if this somehow resolved itself? So there is a contingent at Rolex that also feels if they do nothing, you know, um, just market change will sort of work itself out and they won't ever have to make a complicated decision. I think now several years into this, they're realizing that's probably not going to happen soon enough. So I think that the force of momentum is in the direction of Rolex doing something. But internally, I don't think that they have a solid plan yet. They're, they're still weighing options. So go and check out the article by Scott and particularly the comment section. The comment section has also been very, very busy on Instagram uh, particularly around some of the Omega releases and their similarities to Rolex. So, you know, <laughs> I always do wonder about the extent to which it would both be fun to wade into these arguments just to rabble rouse, but the extent to which I say, no, just sit back and let it happen. But, uh, you know, perhaps Rolex are just relying on everybody else taking up the slack. I mean, maybe Rolex are like, actually, you know, the fact that Omega are producing watches that kind of look like ours and that kind of fill a bit of our market segment, maybe they actually view that as being a good thing because it allows them to continue longer not solving the problem themselves. They can just let the market, as you say, decide that, you know, see this new Aquaterra from Omega that's got a red dial or a blue dial or a yellow dial. Yeah, we'll buy that instead. It just There's a funny thing that happened at Rolex that is unintentional, and I think it's sort of an interesting just sort of cultural observation. Rolex at the end of the day is a mainstream brand. It's yes, it has very exclusive products and cool stuff like that. But the bread and butter of Rolex is selling watches to like you said, middle income people that is what made Rolex and that is what ideally will maintain Rolex. Yet there's this sense of elitism internally that Rolex has to be exclusive, that Rolex is separate from everything, that Rolex can only be in certain very elevated spaces, which is ironic to me because it's completely counterintuitive to the larger mission of Rolex as being mainstream. And so they've got so, it's not everyone there, but some people there have become so overwhelmed with the popularity and success, they misunderstand the larger market positioning of the brand. They're not supposed to be so exclusive like a Richard Meal or something like that. That's not what the brand is about. And if the people think that that's how Rolex needs to be positioned, they've, in a sense, lost touch with what Rolex is supposed to be. Because again, it being a brand which is only achievably reached by someone who is very, very diligent or very, very rich does not actually factor into the success that Rolex has been able to have. It's supposed to be an accessible luxury that someone that wants to reward themselves is able to get. 
I don't think that Rolex has as much of a long-term play if it continues to just be this hype watch. So I think more people internally will ideally recognize that. And of course, with Watches and Wonders coming up, the hype is clearly only going to calm down. No one's going to be interested in what Rolex release in a fortnight's time. It'll be, it'll be a damp <laughs> squib of a story. No one will care. It'll not be reported wall-to-wall by absolutely everybody. I do remember a conversation with uh, another significantly large media outlet that uh, may or may not also sell watches that their dream was being able to sell Rolexes. That was the that was the end game. Become a Rolex authorized dealer. Look, I mean, becoming a Rolex authorized dealer is like owning, you know, really good land, but in a place where you can't really develop it. There's a lot of ordinances. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything is highly restrictive. It's like you have something valuable, but you can't really make too much of it. And there's a there's a huge amount of maintenance all the time. You know, it, it's it is a great thing, but I I don't see people using that as a platform like they used to to sell other brands and things like that like it's it's a very specific type of franchise you're part of the rolex machinery i don't think people can see it anymore as being you know an independent entrepreneurial retailer that just also happens to sell rolex i don't think that those things happen anymore anyway this will no doubt continue as a conversation so (laughs) tune in next week I had the pleasure of speaking to a gentleman I hadn't spoken to but had uh, followed on Instagram for a long time and he wrote an article on the Yes Watch. So we're going to hear briefly from Justin who wrote the article and from Bjorn who owns the company and then we're going to talk about the Yes Watch. So Justin, you've been reviewing the Yes Watch on a blog to watch. It is called the Yes Watch. Is this watch a big yes from you? Hey, good morning, Rick. Yeah, thanks a lot. The watch is a yes. I mean, the watch is a uh, the World Watch V7. This is something pretty unique. I mean, I think in the watch industry, this has been 30 years in the making, something like that. Clearly, it's version seven. It's a yes. I mean, I think that somebody with maybe a little bit stronger forearm muscles and, and wrists might be a little bit better suited to it than me. It's not little. No, I think I think something like 18 millimeters thick the, you know the lug they, they have a nice sort of downward slope that i think makes it actually pretty wearable for me all things considered but but the other day you know i was kind of thinking about it and it's sort of like i think it's wonder woman has like an invisible jet and there's like benefits to having a watch that sort of disappears but um as soon as you're putting like a coat on or you go through a, a thin doorway you kind of still have to remember that you can bang it off of desks and walls so the question is are there more holes on the watch or more holes on the doors which which suffers the most <laughs> you know the, the watch that that brushed titanium it gets a couple little scuffs here and there but i would say that it that it wins out over the door jams the the watch is tough i i, I wrote my article it's, it's not i don't think it's a watch for everybody and i don't think it's really intended to be at a thousand dollar price point the fact that you can just set it on a charger overnight and you're good for something crazy like a month is pretty fantastic that kind of analog digital digital uh display is, is something unique and, and honestly i probably have used this thing over the past few weeks i've probably used it to maybe 30 percent of what it's capable of i mean in terms of functionality it's, it's got things that um other than like making my coffee for me in the mornings this thing can like it can time all of it i mean it can i can look at your time zone and mine i can i can do a, a whole bunch and it comes with a pretty robust booklet of how to operate it that you know if you're technically minded i think this is a watch that tends to be favorable for people who really like to kind of get in the weeds and have a ton of functionality so if you have a you know g-shock or something and you still haven't figured it out this one might be like 
a level up from that in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of functionality. Cool. Well, uh, you can check out the full review on a blog to watch. I'm a big fan of kind of Digi Annie watches like this. So I'm really looking forward to trying one of these out sometime. We will be hearing from Bjorn, the owner or creator of this watch, uh, shortly. So thanks very much for joining us, Justin. Uh, where can people find you on the world of the internet? Yeah, on the internet, I'm probably most active on, on Instagram. It's it's uh, the underscore Restorian, W-R-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N. So I have my own blog and I do some freelance writing. So if you want to check out some of my personal watches, watches I'm reviewing, you can check it out there. Our guest this week is a result of Justin's article on the Yes World Watch V7. And we get to speak to the creator today, Bjorn. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Greetings from California. Yeah, you don't sound like a native. <laughs> I don't sound quite like a native. I'm originally a Norwegian, but by now I kind of am a world citizen, to tell you the truth. And you've created a watch to match. So Bjorn, we've kind of already touched on actually who you are, but let's do who, what, why, we when. Who are you and what is your business? My name is Bjorn Kurthompton, and I am the founder and president of the Yes Watch Company out of California. What is it you have released, and what is the market that you're trying to serve with this release? Good question. We just recently re released our seventh generation of the World Watch. What market did we do it for? Hmm, I guess I started out by doing it for myself. I was uh, proudly wearing a Rolex Submariner back in the glorious 80s, and I was traveling, and I realized that my Rolex couldn't tell me time for sun sunrise tomorrow, which I wanted. So that was kind of the impetus to the whole thing. I just wanted a watch that would give me the natural cycles of time, the natural cycles of the sun and the moon. And so you're from Norway, where perpetual day and perpetual darkness does occur in certain parts of the country. Can the Yes Watch handle 24 hours of daylight and 24 hours of darkness? Of course. It's pre-programmed to 650 cities worldwide and calculates all the sun and moon data based on algorithms given by NASA. So basically, you get plus minus two minutes times for sunrise, sunset, Moonrise, moonset, zenith, and twilight for wherever you are on the planet. And yes, it'll handle the North Pole if you go there. Why this is why version seven? It's just an evolution. We got started back in 1999, and I was, to tell you truthfully, I was a total rookie. I just came at this with an idea. I just wanted a watch that gave me this information. So we started developing, and I ended up in Hong Kong because what you need to do this is chip technology. You need astronomical algorithms. So we developed the first in 1999, and then since then, it's just been an ongoing process to refine and make it better and make it cooler and the one that we have now the v7 is actually it's it's the best one we've put together so far by it has wireless charging and on a full night of charging you'll get about three months of battery life which is quite impressive where can we find it and how much is it you could find it on our website at yeswatch.com. The titanium case models on a soft strap is $795. Fitted on a titanium bracelet, it is $995. And by the sounds of it, it has been released. I assume that is the case. We can get it right now? You can get it right now. Uh, we've been available since right before Christmas, and it's available now. Well, thank you for doing who, what, why, where, when. I get some additional questions because I'm doing the interview. So why is it called the Yes Watch? <laughs> That's a good question. We really need to drink a bottle of wine before we get into it. But the short of it is that it's simply, there are stories. This was created in the 1990s, okay? Do you remember the 90s? Uh, I do remember the 90s. Do you remember how gloriously delusional we all were? We believed in stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah, world peace and, you know, people getting on with each other. Whatever happened to that? <laughs> 
But the long and the short of it, it simply just means, means an attitude. You know, make it happen. Don't take no for answer. Do it your way. That Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way, could go with this very well. Check out Justin's review. I think he's quite smitten by it. Thank you, Bjorn. What's coming next? Is, is version eight in the pipeline or something entirely different? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, everybody should check out the article and check out the website. Where can we find you on the internet, Bjorn? Yeswatch.com. And Instagram is yeswatch underscore official. Thank you for joining us, Bjorn. <laughs> have a great day. Have a great day, my buddy in Glasgow. Enjoy. You've heard from them. Justin, great guy. Really like speaking to him. Bjorn, apart from the outtakes that preceded actually being able to record because the Zoom conversation, it was the funniest thing you've ever seen because none of us could hear each other and everyone's waving their arms in the air trying to figure out what the problem is. But great guy. Yeah. You'd like to go on a night out with him. He'd he'd set the town on fire, I suspect. Actually, probably literally set the town on fire, but at least to be able to tell the time doing it with this Yes Watch. I really like this. I followed the Yes Watch story for a wee while, never seen one, but it's just a guy who's got an idea and who just followed his passion and has created something that really is quite special. What do you think of it? So, likewise, I agree that Bjorn is a character. Uh, and he um, he doesn't live too far from me here in, in California, but far enough that I don't really get to see him. He probably is the kind of guy you want to be able to travel to, but he wants to be like, you know, a, a deliberate situation. I, I suspect if you bumped into him somewhere, that would be the rest of your day done. Yeah, when I get into conversations <laughs> with him, it's... You know, there's there's a lot to exchange, and he's a Great he's a prolific thinker. He's a very gentle, nice person who uh, is very diligent. And he had this he has this idea for a watch, and it's he's kept improving it. And uh, I think yes, had a little bit more popularity sort of in the pre smartwatch era. Um, now the product is really the definition of a niche, a niche watch. There's nothing else like it. It's not made obsolete by smartwatches at all. This is version 7. I actually remember when I was an early, early watch collector before I ever even started a blog to watch, I bought a Yes watch just because I thought the concept was so cool. It was so nerdy. It was so interesting the way it worked. When you wear it, and again, this isn't the only single you know, hand watch out there, but what the dial does is it creates a visual experience of the span of the day especially in relation to when it's light and when it's dark. And it was the first watch I'd ever worn that presented an infographic that showed me this information in a way that actually allowed me to to use it. It's one thing to know that the sunrise sunset time, it's one thing to know, you know, what the 24-hour time is in the day, but the way that he designed the dial was beautifully effective at doing something that I'd never seen anything else do. For example, showing you visually how much twilight is left before it's totally dark out. And again, the watches themselves have remained kind of big, kind of clunky. They're titanium. They're actually comfortable to wear. But it's it's a gadget on the wrist. This is not a fancy dress watch. This is a gadget on the wrist for people that can appreciate what he's trying to do. There is real utility to it. There's a lot of little things in there. A lot of little details that are great, like the like the tritium gas tube used in the in, in, in the hour hand, and just little things here and there that have improved it over the years. But there's been some gaffes. Uh, for example, the generation I think before this, I actually politely said we should not review 
because it had a weird feature that if you let the battery die and you had to recharge this thing, you could never recharge it again. Meaning if you let the battery totally die, it was dead forever. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> going back and forth with it. I was like, listen, Bjorn, I cannot, I cannot talk about a product that if you allow the battery to die, it's literally dead forever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's it's the ultimate, uh, what do you call it, <laughs> memory watch from earlier on. This is... This is Bjorn's version of that Louis Vuitton for literally yeah. 0.1%. When it's dead, it's dead. Like, imagine if your phone <laughs> died and you're like, okay, and then you go to plug it in and you're thinking like, okay, the battery's dead, I'll charge it and it'll charge back up and I'll turn on. No, this thing had like, I don't, don't even ask me to explain why. He explained it to me and I was like, I don't know why somebody would engineer it that way. The new version doesn't do that, okay? He, no, he, fig- no. he figured that part out, but it was just... It's a guy with a relatively small budget with aspirations that were bigger than this budget, trying to cobble this stuff together year after year. And you got to admire that. They're not that expensive for what you get. You got to wade through some weird options. But when you wear some of these, you know, the, the sense of there's no tool watch out there that has as much character as this thing, in my opinion. I mean, and there's nothing Absolutely. else out there like that. As a collector, it's so difficult not to want to carve out a tiny little part of your collection for this. You know what I mean? It, again, I completely agree. <laughs> I mean, it's 46 mil. It's huge. Although Justin, who's not aware of large watches, was like, no, it wears really nicely. It's not going to go under a dress cuff, but it wears really nicely. For 900 bucks, there or thereabouts, I honestly think... Everybody listening needs to go out and buy one of these because these just look like watches that are going to make you smile. And if the hobby's not about owning things that actually just are like, this is cool, then I don't know what I don't know what it's about. This just looks epic. Love it. Just go buy one. Go buy one now. If for no other reason than the character who runs the company. But don't you love how polarizing these things are? Because while we're sitting there romanced by the weirdness <laughs> and the utility, there's so many people that are like aghast. How could you ever think to tell me to wear something like this? Like they, like they can't wrap their mind around what utility it serves. They're not really in love with the aesthetics. I mean, if you're like a dress watch person or entirely wear watches, maybe for social purposes or status symbols, you'll never figure this thing out. But if you actually come to watches from a, a tool appreciation perspective that I, Richard does, and many, many other people do, it's, it's hard not to smile like a boy when you, when you figure out how yeah. this thing works. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's a thing that lights up it's it's cool i mean what, what would you want it's it's a cool gadget it's just a gadget it's just it, it, yeah i love it and yeah go check out the comment section uh in the article from uh from justin so yeah i uh, love it i can't say a bad thing about it even if there are flaws in it and i'm sure there are for for the price for what it does do and what it does do well just go check one of these out would be our suggestion this would be the the yes <laughs> world watch version seven <laughs> yeah yeah if uh if ever a blog to watch was to sell watches we should be selling this kind of watch but this is, <laughs> this, is <laughs> this is this is good this is good so go, go check that out okay folks thank you very much for listening it's been a fun show Ariel. great to catch up with you now that you've been back from switzerland the week ahead is washing your Washing your smalls and getting them repacked to go off to the Geneva again? 
Yes, so on March 27th, I will be leaving Los Angeles uh, first to attend a Breitling event in Zurich where we get to see some exciting new watches. I, I know what some of them are, and people are going to enjoy that. And then it's off to Watches and Wonders in Geneva. March 30th is when the show officially starts, and it goes until April 5th. That is going to be a full week of meeting with watch brands. Uh, we have a meeting with uh, Rolex to start off everything. We're going to see what their latest watches are. I mean, I know they're going to be hard to get, but it's hard not to be excited. Tudor's <laughs> going to be there. Patek Philippe is going to be there. All the Richemont brands are going to be there. It's going to be an exciting time seeing uh, new brands around town. And that's actually one of the things that I like the most is seeing actually the new brands. No matter how crowded this watch market gets, you still have entrepreneurs coming in this space with new stuff all the time. And I really enjoy that. I have such a soft spot for new brands uh, in addition to what sort of the old brands do. I don't think we're going to be seeing a ton of innovation probably a lot of commercial marketability from the, you know, the Richemont brands and the ones showing at Watches and Wonders. But it's those little weird guys around town that have something strange and avant-garde and, and unique that capture my attention. So I'm going to have a whirlwind of a time there and we will have literally hundreds of new watches that we will have shot um, and material to discuss for, for months. Yeah, yeah. No, looking forward to it. It will be good. Uh, quick shout out to Sebastian, who, after a previous show, actually mocked up a biker jacket for you with a blog to watch on the back. Yeah, I noticed so that. It was cool. I think we get that made. I, th I think you should be there. Yeah, yeah, we definitely get that made. <laughs> I would rock that look. I'm not much of a motorcycle rider, but I like, uh -huh. the, I like the vest. I think you... Uh, wearing that round watches and wonders with your yes watch on is absolutely the look you need to be going for uh so yeah thanks to uh sebastian for that if you want to interact with the show you can do on the instagram account go check out a blog to watch the instagram you can interact via the website on a Saturday. There's an article that goes out with all the uh, content from the various podcasts that week. But as we said earlier, you can also interact with the show directly via listening to the show on Spotify. So if you've got a nomination for Watch the Week, then do send us a voicemail or something you just want to say or something you want to comment about about what we've said. Come disagree with us. Bring, bring us the chat so uh, we look forward to hearing from that. So other than that, uh, it's cheerio. Have a great week, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.